0: Introduction of Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. Read by Bob Newfeld. I had the story bit by bit from various people, and as generally happens in such cases, each time it was a different story. If you know Starkfield, Massachusetts, you know the post office. If you know the post office. You must have seen Ethan Frome drive up to it, drop the reins on his hollow-backed bay, and drag himself across the brick pavement to the white colonnade. And you must have asked who he was. It was there that, several years ago, I saw him for the first time, and the sight pulled me up sharp. Even then he was the most striking figure in Starkfield though he was but the ruin of a man. It was not so much his great height that marked him, for the natives were easily singled out by their lank longitude from the stockier foreign breed. It was the careless, powerful look he had, in spite of a lameness, checking each step like the jerk of a chain. There was something bleak and unapproachable in his face, and he was so stiffened and grizzled that I took him for an old man, and was surprised to hear that he was not more than fifty-two. I had this from Harmon Gow, who had driven the stage from Betts Bridge to Starkfield in pre trolley days, and knew the chronicle of all the families on his line. "'He's looked that way ever since he had his smash-up, and that's twenty-four years ago, come next February.' Harmon threw out, between reminiscent pauses, The smash-up it was, I gathered from the same informant, which, besides drawing the red gash across Ethan Frome's forehead, had so shortened and warped his right side, that it cost him a visible effort to take the few steps from his buggy to the post-office window. He used to drive in from his farm every day at about noon, and as that was my own hour of fetching my mail, I often passed him in the porch or stood beside him while he waited on the motions of the distributing hand behind the grating. I noticed that, though he came so punctually, he seldom received anything but a copy of the Bettsbridge Eagle, which she put without a glance into his sagging pocket. At intervals, however, the postmaster would hand him an envelope addressed to Mrs. Zenobia or Mrs. Zena Frome, and usually bearing conspicuously in the upper left-hand corner the address of some manufacturer of patent medicine, and the name of his specific. These documents my neighbor would also pocket without a glance, as if too much used to them to wonder at their number and variety, and would then turn away with a silent nod to the postmaster. Every one in Starkfield knew him, and gave him a greeting tempered to his own grave mien, but his taciturnity was respected, and it was only on rare occasions that one of the older men of the place detained him for a word. When this happened, he would listen quietly, his blue eyes on the speaker's face, and answer in so low a tone that his words never reached me. Then he would climb stiffly into his buggy, gather up the reins in his left hand, and drive slowly away in the direction of his farm it was a pretty bad smash-up i questioned harmon looking after frome's retreating figure and thinking how gallantly his lean brown head with its shock of light hair must have sat on his strong shoulders before they were bent out of shape worst kind my informant assented born enough to kill most men but the fromes are tough even a likely touch a hundred "'Good God!' I exclaimed. At the moment, Ethan Frome, after climbing to his seat, had leaned over to assure himself of the security of a wooden box, also with a druggist's label on it, which he had placed in the back of the buggy. And I saw his face, as it probably looked when he thought himself alone. "'That man touch a hundred! He looks as if he is dead and in hell now!' Harmon drew a slab of tobacco from his pocket, cut off a wedge, and pressed it into the leather pouch of his cheek. "'Guess he's been in Starkfield too many winters. Most of the smart ones get away. Why didn't he? Somebody had to stay and care for the folks. There weren't ever anybody but Ethan. First his father, then his mother, then his wife. And then the smash-up?' Harmon chuckled sardonically. "'That's so. He had to stay then.' "'I see. And since then they've had to care for him?' Harmon thoughtfully passed his tobacco to the other cheek. "'Oh, as to that, I guess it's always Ethan done the caring.' Though Harmon Gow developed the tale as far as his mental and moral reach permitted, there were perceptible gaps between his facts." and i had the sense that the deeper meaning of the story was in the gaps but one phrase stuck in my memory and served as the nucleus about which i grouped my subsequent inferences guess he spent in starkfield too many winters before my own time there was up i had learned to know what that meant yet i had come in the degenerate day of trolley bicycle and rural delivery when communication was easy between the scattered mountain villages, and the bigger towns in the valleys, such as Bettsbridge and Shads Falls, had libraries, theatres, and y m c a halls to which the youth of the hills could descend for recreation. But when winter shut down on Starkfield and the village lay under a sheet of snow perpetually renewed from the pale skies, I began to see what life there, or rather its negation, must have been in Ethan Frome's young manhood. I had been sent by my employers on a job connected with the big power-house at Corbury Junction, and a long-drawn carpenter's strike had so delayed the work that I found myself anchored at Stockfield, the nearest habitable spot, for the best part of the winter. I chafed at first, and then, under the hypnotizing effect of routine, gradually began to find a grim satisfaction in the life. During the early part of my stay I had been struck by the contrast between the vitality of the climate and the deadness of the community. Day by day, after the December snows were over, a blazing blue sky poured down torrents of light and air on the white landscape, which gave them back in an intenser glitter one would have supposed that such an atmosphere must quicken the emotions as well as the blood but it seemed to produce no change except that of retarding still more the sluggish pulse of starkfield when i had been there a little longer and had seen this phase of crystal clearness followed by long stretches of sunless cold when the storms of february had pitched their white tents about the devoted village And the wild cavalry of March Winds had charged down to their support, I began to understand why Starkfield emerged from its six months siege like a starved garrison capitulating without quarter. Twenty years earlier, the means of resistance must have been far fewer, and the enemy in command of almost all the lines of access between the beleaguered villages. And considering these things, I felt the sinister force of Harmon's phrase, most of the smart ones get away. But if that were the case, how could any combination of obstacles have hindered the flight of a man like Ethan Frome? During my stay at Starkfield I lodged with a middle-aged widow, colloquially known as Mrs. Ned Hale. Mrs. Hale's father had been the village lawyer of the previous generation and lawyer varnum's house where my landlady still lived with her mother was the most considerable mansion in the village it stood at one end of the main street its classic portico and small-paned windows looking down a flagged path between norway spruces to the slim white steeple of the congregational church it was clear that the varnum fortunes were at the ebb But the two women did what they could to preserve a decent dignity, and Mrs. Hale in particular had a certain wan refinement, not out of keeping with her pale old-fashioned house. In the best parlour, with its black horsehair and mahogany weakly illuminated by a gurgling carcel lamp, I listened every evening to another and more delicately shaded version of the Starkfield Chronicle. It was not that Mrs. Ned Hale felt, or affected, any social superiority to the people about her. It was only that the accident of a finer sensibility, and a little more education, had put just enough distance between herself and her neighbours to enable her to judge them with detachment. She was not unwilling to exercise this faculty and I had great hopes of getting from her the missing facts of Ethan Frome's story, or rather such a key to his character as should coordinate the facts I knew. Her mind was a storehouse of innocuous anecdotes, and any question about her acquaintances brought forth a volume of detail. But on the subject of Ethan Frome I found her unexpectedly reticent there was no hint of disapproval in her reserve. I merely felt in her an insurmountable reluctance to speak of him or his affairs. A low, yes, I knew them both. It was awful," seeming to be the utmost concession that her distress could make to my curiosity. So marked was the change in her manner, such depths of sad initiation did it imply, that with some doubts as to my delicacy, I put the case anew to my village oracle Harmon Gow, but got for my pains only an uncomprehending grunt. Ruth Varnum was always as nervous as a rat, and come to think of it, she was the first one to see him after they was picked up. It happened right below Lawyer Varnum's, down at the end of the Corbury Road just round about the time that ruth got engaged to ned hale the young folks was all friends and i guess she just can't bear to talk about it she's had troubles enough of her own all the dwellers in stockfield as in more notable communities had had troubles enough of their own to make them comparatively indifferent to those of their neighbors and though all conceded that ethan fromes had been beyond the common measure No one gave me an explanation of the look in his face, which, as I persisted in thinking, neither poverty nor physical suffering could have put there. Nevertheless, I might have contented myself with the story pieced together from these hints, had it not been for the provocation of Mrs. Hale's silence, and, a little later, for the accident of personal contact with the man on my arrival at starkfield dennis edie the rich irish grocer who was the proprietor of Stockfield's nearest approach to a livery stable had entered into an agreement to send me over daily to corbury flats where i had to pick up my train for the junction but about the middle of the winter edie's horses fell ill of a local epidemic the illness spread to the other Stockfield stables and for a day or two I was put to it to find a means of transport. Then Harmond Gow suggested that Ethan Frome's bay was still on his legs, and that his owner might be glad to drive me over. I stared at the suggestion. "'Ethan Frome? But I've never even spoken to him. Why on earth should he put himself out for me?' Harmon's answer surprised me still more i don't know as he would but i know he wouldn't be sorry to earn a dollar i had been told that frome was poor and that the sawmill and the arid acres of his farm yielded scarcely enough to keep his household through the winter but i had not supposed him to be in such want as harmon's words implied and i expressed my wonder well matters ain't gone any too well with him harmon said when a man's been sitting around like a hulk for twenty years or more, seeing things that want doin', it eats into him, and he loses his grit. That Frome farm was always about as bare as a milk-pan when the cat's been round, and you know what one of them old water-mills is worth nowadays. When Ethan could sweat over em both from sun-up to dark, he kind of choked a living out of em. but his folks ain't up most everything even then and i don't see how he makes out now first his father got a kick out hayin', went soft in the brain and gave away money like bible text afore he died then his mother got queer and dragged along for years as weak as a baby and his wife Zena, she's always been the greatest hand at doctrine in the county sickness and trouble That's what Ethan's had his plate full up with, ever since the very first helping. The next morning, when I looked out, I saw the hollow-backed bay between the Varnum spruces, and Ethan Frome, throwing back his worn bearskin, made room for me in the sleigh at his side. After that, for a week, he drove me every morning to Corbury Flats and on my return in the afternoon met me again, and carried me back through the icy night to Starkfield. The distance each way was barely three miles, but the old bay's pace was slow, and even with firm snow under the runners we were nearly an hour on the way. Ethan Frome drove in silence, the reins loosely held in his left hand, his brown-seamed profile, under the helmet-like peak of the cap, relieved against the banks of the snow like the bronze image of a hero. He never turned his face to mine, or answered, except in monosyllables, the questions I put or such slight pleasantries as I ventured. He seemed a part of the mute, melancholy landscape, an incarnation of its frozen woe, with all that was warm and sentient in him fast bound below the surface but there was nothing unfriendly in his silence. I simply felt that he lived in a depth of moral isolation too remote for casual access, and I had the sense that his loneliness was not merely the result of his personal plight—tragic as I guessed that to be—but had in it, as Harmon Gow had hinted, the profound accumulated cold of many Starkfield winters. Only once or twice was the distance between us bridged for a moment, and the glimpses thus gained confirmed my desire to know more. Once I happened to speak of an engineering job I had been on the previous year in Florida, another contrast between the winter landscape about us and that in which I had found myself the year before. And to my surprise Frome said suddenly, Yes, I was down there once. And for a good while afterward, I would call up the sight of it in winter. But now it's all snowed under. He said no more, and I had to guess the rest from the inflection of his voice and his sharp relapse into silence. Another day, on getting into my train at the flats, I missed a volume of popular science-I think it was on some recent discoveries in biochemistry-which I had carried with me to read on the way. I thought no more about it till I got into the sleigh again that evening, and saw the book in Frome's hand. "'I found it after you were gone,' he said. I put the volume into my pocket, and we dropped back into our usual silence. But as we began to crawl up the long hill from Corbury Flats to the Starkfield Ridge, I became aware in the dusk that he had turned his face to mine. "'There are things in that book that I didn't know the first word about,' he said. I wondered less at his words than at the queer note of resentment in his voice. He was evidently surprised, and slightly aggrieved, at his own ignorance. "'Does uh, that sort of thing interest you?' I asked. "'It used to. There are one or two rather new things in the book.' there have been some big strides lately in that particular line of research.' I waited a moment for an answer that did not come. Then I said, "'If you'd like to look the book through, I'd be glad to leave it with you.' He hesitated, and I had the impression that he felt himself about to yield to a stealing tide of inertia. Then—' "'Thank you. I'll take it,' he answered shortly i hoped that this incident might set up some more direct communication between us rome was so simple and straightforward that i was sure his curiosity about the book was based on a genuine interest in the subject such tastes and acquirements in a man of his condition made the contrast more poignant between his outer situation and his inner needs and i hoped that the chance of giving expression to the latter might at least unseal his lips. But something in his past history, or in his present way of living, had apparently driven him too deeply into himself for any casual impulse to draw him back to his kind. At our next meeting he made no allusion to the book, and our intercourse seemed fated to remain as negative and one-sided as if there had been no break in his reserve. Frome had been driving me over to the flats for about a week, when one morning I looked out of my window into a thick snowfall. The height of the white waves, massed against the garden fence, and along the wall of the church, showed that the storm must have been going on all night, and that the drifts were likely to be heavy in the open. I thought it probable that my train would be delayed but I had to be at the power-house for an hour or two that afternoon, and I decided, if Frome turned up, to push through to the flats and wait there till my train came in. I don't know why I put it in the conditional, however, for I never doubted that Frome would appear. He was not the kind of man to be turned from his business by any commotion of the elements, and at the appointed hour, His sleigh glided up through the snow like a stage apparition behind thickening veils of gauze. I was getting to know him too well to express either wonder or gratitude at his keeping his appointment. But I exclaimed in surprise as I saw him turn his horse in a direction opposite to that of the Corbury Road. "'The railroad's blocked by a freight train that got stuck in the drift below the flats,' he explained as we jogged off into the stinging whiteness. "'But look here. Where are you taking me, then?' "'Straight to the junction. By the shortest way,' he answered, pointing up Schoolhouse Hill with his whip. "'To the junction? In this storm? Why, it's a good ten miles.' "'The bay'll do it, if you give him time. You said you had some business there this afternoon. I'll see you get there.' He said it so quietly that I could only answer, You're doing me the biggest kind of favor. That's all right, he rejoined. Abreast of the schoolhouse the road forked, and we dipped down a lane to the left between hemlock boughs bent inward to their trunks by the weight of the snow. I had often walked that way on Sundays, and knew that the solitary roof showing through bare branches near the bottom of the hill was that of Fromm's sawmill. It looked exanimate enough, with its idle wheel looming above the black stream dashed with yellow white spume, and its cluster of sheds sagging under their white load. From did not even turn his head as we drove by, and still in silence we began to mount the next slope. About a mile farther, on a road I had never travelled, we came to an orchard of starved apple-trees, writhing over a hillside, among outcroppings of slate, that nuzzled up through the snow like animals pushing out their noses to breathe. Beyond the orchard lay a field or two, their boundaries lost under drifts, and above the fields, huddled against the white immensities of land and sky, one of those lonely New England farmhouses that made the landscape lonelier. "'That's my place,' said Frum, with a sideway jerk of his lame elbow, and in the distress and oppression of the scene I did not know what to answer. The snow had ceased, and a flash of watery sunlight exposed the house on the slope above us in all its plaintive ugliness. The black wraith of a deciduous creeper flapped from the porch, and the thin wooden walls, under their worn-out coat of paint, seemed to shiver in the wind that had risen with the ceasing of the snow. The house was bigger in my father's time. I had to take down the L a while back," From continued, checking with a twitch on the left rein the bay's evident intention of turning in through the broken-down gate. I saw then that the unusually forlorn and stunted look of the house was partly due to the loss of what is known in New England as the L that long deep-roofed adjunct usually built at right angles to the main house and connecting it by way of storerooms and tool-house with the woodshed and cow-barn whether because of its symbolic sense the image it presents of a life linked with the soil and enclosing in itself the chief sources of warmth and nourishment, or whether merely because of the consolatory thought that it enables the dwellers in that harsh climate to get to their morning's work without facing the weather, it is certain that the L, rather than the house itself, seems to be the centre, the actual hearthstone of the New England farm. Perhaps this connection of ideas, which had often occurred to me in my rambles about Starkfield, caused me to hear a wistful note in Frome's words, and to see in the diminished dwelling the image of his own shrunken body. "'We're kind of sidetracked here now,' he added, but there was considerable passion before the railroad was carried through to the flats. He roused the lagging bay with another twitch. Then, as if the mere sight of the house had let me too deeply into his confidence for any further pretense of reserve, he went on slowly. "'I've always set down the worst of mother's trouble to that. When she got the rheumatism so bad she couldn't move around, she used to sit up there and watch the road by the hour. And one year, when they were six months bending the Bettsbridge Pike after the floods, and Harmon Gow had to bring his stage round this way, she picked up, so that she used to get down to the gate most days to see him. But after the trains began running, nobody ever come by here to speak of, and mother could never get it through her head what had happened, and it preyed on her right along till she died. As we turned into the Corbury Road, the snow began to fall again cutting off our last glimpse of the house, and Frome's silence fell with it, letting down between us the old veil of reticence. This time the wind did not cease with the return of the snow. Instead it sprung up to a gale which now and then, from a tattered sky, flung pale sweeps of sunlight over a landscape chaotically tossed. But the bay was as good as Frome's word and we pushed on to the junction through the wild white scene. In the afternoon the storm held off, and the clearness in the west seemed to my inexperienced eye the pledge of a fair evening. I finished my business as quickly as possible, and we set out for Starkfield with a good chance of getting there for supper. But at sunset the clouds gathered again, bringing an earlier night and the snow began to fall straight and steadily from a sky without wind in a soft universal diffusion more confusing than the gusts and eddies of the morning it seemed to be a part of the thickening darkness to be the winter night itself descending on us layer by layer the small ray of frome's lantern was soon lost in the smothering medium in which even his sense of direction and the bay's homing instinct finally ceased to serve us. Two or three times some ghostly landmark sprang up to warn us that we were astray, and then was sucked back into the mist. And when we finally regained our road, the old horse began to show signs of exhaustion. I felt myself to blame for having accepted Frome's offer. And after a short discussion I persuaded him to let me get out of the sleigh and walk along through the snow at the bay's side. In this way we struggled on for another mile or two, and at last reached a point where Frome, peering into what seemed to me formless night, said, "That's my gate down yonder." The last stretch had been the hardest part of the way. The bitter cold and the heavy going had nearly knocked the wind out of me, and I could feel the horse's side ticking like a clock under my hand. "'Look here, Frome, I began, "'there's no earthly use in your going any farther.' But he interrupted me. "'Nor you neither. There's been about enough of this for anybody.' I understood that he was offering me a night's shelter at the farm, and without answering I turned into the gate at his side, and followed him to the barn, where I helped him to unharness and bed down the tired horse. When this was done, he unhooked the lantern from the sleigh, stepped out again into the night, and called to me over his shoulder. This way. Far off above us a square of light trembled through the screen of snow. Staggering along in Frome's wake, I floundered toward it and in the darkness almost fell into one of the deep drifts against the front of the house. Frome scrambled up the slippery steps of the porch, digging away through the snow with his heavily booted foot. Then he lifted his lantern, found the latch, and led the way into the house. I went after him into a low, unlit passage, at the back of which a ladder-like staircase rose into obscurity. On our right, a line of light marked the door of the room which had sent its ray across the night, and behind the door I heard a woman's voice droning querulously. Frome stamped on the worn oilcloth to shake the snow from his boots, and set down his lantern on a kitchen chair, which was the only piece of furniture in the hall. Then he opened the door. "'Come in,' he said, and as he spoke, the droning voice grew still. It was that night that I found the clue to Ethan Frome, and began to put together this vision of his story. End of introduction. ETHAN FROME by edith warden chapter i the village lay under two feet of snow with drifts at the windy corners in a sky of iron the points of the dipper hung like icicles and orion flashed his cold fires the moon had set but the night was so transparent that the white house-fronts between the elms looked gray against the snow clumps of bushes made black stains on it and the basement windows of the church set shafts of yellow light far across the endless undulations young ethan frome walked at a quick pace along the deserted street past the bank at michael edie's new brick store and lawyer varnum's house with the two black norway spruces at the gate opposite the varnum gate where the road fell away toward the corbury valley the church reared its slim white steeple and narrow peristyle as the young man walked toward it the upper windows drew a black arcade along the side wall of the building but from the lower openings on the side where the ground sloped steeply down to the corbury road the light shot its long bars illuminating many fresh furrows in the track leading to the basement door And showing, under an adjoining shed, a line of sleighs with heavily blanketed horses. The night was perfectly still, and the air so dry and pure that it gave little sensation of cold. The effect produced on Frome was rather of a complete absence of atmosphere, as though nothing less tenuous than ether intervened between the white earth under his feet and the metallic dome overhead. It's like being in an exhausted receiver," he thought. Four or five years earlier he had taken a year's course at the Technological College at Worcester, and dabbled in the laboratory with a friendly professor of physics, and the images supplied by that experience still cropped up, at unexpected moments, through the totally different associations of thought in which he had since been living his father's death and the misfortunes following it had put a premature end to ethan's studies but though they had not gone far enough to be of much practical use they had fed his fancy and made him aware of huge cloudy meanings behind the daily face of things as he strode along through the snow the sense of such meanings glowed in his brain and mingled with the bodily flush produced by his sharp tramp at the end of the village he paused before the darkened front of the church he stood there a moment breathing quickly and looking up and down the street in which not another figure moved the pitch of the corbury road below lawyer varnum spruce's was the favorite coasting-ground of starkfield and on clear evenings the church-corner rang till late with the shouts of the coasters. But to-night not a sled darkened the whiteness of the long declivity. The hush of midnight lay on the village, and all its waking life was gathered behind the church windows, from which strains of dance-music flowed with the broad bands of yellow light. The young man, skirting the side of the building, Went down the slope toward the basement door. To keep out of range of the revealing rays from within, he made a circuit through the untrodden snow, and gradually approached the farther angle of the basement wall. Thence, still hugging the shadow, he edged his way cautiously forward to the nearest window, holding back his straight spare body and craning his neck till he got a glimpse of the room seemed thus from the pure and frosty darkness in which he stood it seemed to be seething in a mist of heat the metal reflectors of the gas jets set crude waves of light against the whitewashed walls and the iron flanks of the stove at the end of the hall looked as though they were heaving with volcanic fires the floor was thronged with girls and young men down the side wall facing the window stood a row of kitchen chairs from which the older women had just arisen by this time the music had stopped and the musicians a fiddler and the young lady who played the harmonium on sundays were hastily refreshing themselves at one corner of the supper-table which aligned its devastated pie-dishes and ice-cream saucers on the platform at the end of the hall the guests were preparing to leave And the tide had already set toward the passage where coats and wraps were hung, when a young man with a sprightly foot and a shock of black hair shot into the middle of the floor and clapped his hands. The signal took instant effect. The musicians hurried to their instruments. The dancers, some already half muffled for departure, fell into line down each side of the room. The older spectators slipped back to their chairs and the lively young man, after diving about here and there in the throng, drew forth a girl who had already wound a cherry-coloured fascinator about her head, and leading her up to the end of the floor, whirled her down its length to the bounding tune of a Virginia Reel. Frome's heart was beating fast. He had been straining for a glimpse of the dark head under the cherry-coloured scarf and it vexed him that another eye should have been quicker than his the leader of the reel who looked as if he had irish blood in his veins danced well and his partner caught his fire as she passed down the line her light figure swinging from hand to hand in circles of increasing swiftness the scarf flew off her head and stood out behind her shoulders and from at each turn caught sight of her laughing panting lips the cloud of dark hair about her forehead and the dark eyes which seemed the only fixed points in a maze of flying lines the dancers were going faster and faster and the musicians to keep up with them belaboured their instruments like jockeys lashing their mounts on the home stretch yet it seemed to the young man at the window that the reel would never end. Now and then he turned his eyes from the girl's face to that of her partner, which, in the exhilaration of the dance, had taken on a look of almost impudent ownership. Dennis Eady was the son of Michael Eady, the ambitious Irish grocer, whose suppleness and effrontery had given Starkfield its first notion of smart business methods and whose new brick store testified to the success of the attempt his son seemed likely to follow in his steps and was meanwhile applying the same arts to the conquest of the starkfield maidenhood hitherto ethan frome had been content to think him a mean fellow but now he positively invited a horse-whipping it was strange that the girl did not seem aware of it that she could lift her rapt face to her dancer's and drop her hands into his without appearing to feel the offence of his look and touch frome was in the habit of walking into starkfield to fetch home his wife's cousin mattie silver on the rare evenings when some chance of amusement drew her to the village it was his wife who had suggested when the girl came to live with them that such opportunities should be put in her way matty silver came from stamford and when she entered the frome's household to act as her cousin Zena's aide it was thought best as she came without pay not to let her feel too sharp a contrast between the life she had left and the isolation of a starkfield farm but for this as frome sardonically reflected it would hardly have occurred to Zeena to take any thought for the girl's amusement. When his wife first proposed that they should give Mattie an occasional evening out, he had inwardly demurred at having to do the extra two miles to the village and back, after his hard day on the farm. But not long afterward he had reached the point of wishing that Starkfield might give all its nights to revelry. Mattie silver had lived under his roof for a year and from early morning till they met at supper he had frequent chances of seeing her but no moments in her company were comparable to those when her arm in his and her light step flying to keep time with his long stride they walked back through the night to the farm he had taken to the girl from the first day When he had driven over to the flats to meet her, and she had smiled and waved to him from the train, crying out, You must be Ethan! as she jumped down with her bundles, while he reflected, looking over her slight person, She don't look much on housework, but she ain't a fretter anyhow. It was not only that the coming to his house of a bit of hopeful young life was like the lighting of a fire on a cold hearth, The girl was more than the bright, serviceable creature he had thought her. She had an eye to see and an ear to hear. He could show her things and and tell her things, and taste the bliss of feeling that all he imparted left long reverberations and echoes he could wake at will. It was during their night walks back to the farm that he felt most intensely the sweetness of this communion. He had always been more sensitive than the people about him to the appeal of natural beauty. His unfinished studies had given form to this sensibility, and even in his unhappiest moments field and sky spoke to him with a deep and powerful persuasion. But hitherto the emotion had remained in him as a silent ache, veiling with sadness the beauty that evoked it. He did not even know whether anyone else in the world felt as he did, or whether he was the sole victim of this mournful privilege. Then he learned that one other spirit had trembled with the same touch of wonder, that at his side, living under his roof and eating his bread, was a creature to whom he could say, "'That's Orion down yonder,' the big fellow to the right is aldebaran and a bunch of little ones like bees swarming they're the pleiades or whom he could hold entranced before a ledge of granite thrusting up through the fern while he unrolled the huge panorama of the ice age and the long dim stretches of succeeding time the fact that admiration for his learning mingled with mattie's wonder at what he taught was not the least part of his pleasure. And there were other sensations, less definable but more exquisite, which drew them together with a shock of silent joy. The cold red of sunset behind winter hills, the flight of cloud-flocks over slopes of golden stubble, or the intensely blue shadows of hemlocks on sunlit snow. When she said to him once, it looks just as if it was painted. It seemed to Ethan that the art of definition could go no farther, and that words had at last been found to utter his secret soul. As he stood in the darkness outside the church, these memories came back with the poignancy of vanished things. Watching Mattie whirl down the floor from hand to hand, he wondered how he could ever have thought that his dull talk interested her. To him, who was never gay but in her presence, her gaiety seemed plain proof of indifference. The face she lifted to her dancers was the same which, when she saw him, always looked like a window that has caught the sunset. He even noticed two or three gestures which, in his fatuity, he had thought she kept for him, a way of throwing her head back when she was amused, as if to taste her laugh before she let it out, and a trick of sinking her lids slowly when anything charmed or moved her. The sight made him unhappy, and his unhappiness roused his latent fears. His wife had never shown any jealousy of Mattie, but of late, she had grumbled increasingly over the housework, and found oblique ways of attracting attention to the girl's inefficiency. Zena had always been what Starkfield called sickly, and Frome had to admit that if she were as ailing as she believed, she needed the help of a stronger arm than the one which lay so lightly in his during the night walks to the farm. Mattie had no natural turn for housekeeping and her training had done nothing to remedy the defect. She was quick to learn, but forgetful and dreamy, and not disposed to take the matter seriously. Ethan had an idea that if she were to marry a man she was fond of, the dormant instinct would wake, and her pies and biscuits become the pride of the county. But domesticity in the abstract did not interest her at first she was so awkward that he could not help laughing at her but she laughed with him and that made them better friends he did his best to supplement her unskilled efforts getting up earlier than usual to light the kitchen fire carrying in the wood overnight and neglecting the mill for the farm that he might help her about the house during the day he even crept down on saturday nights to scrub the kitchen floor after the women had gone to bed and Zena one day had surprised him at the churn and turned away silently with one of her queer looks of late there had been other signs of her disfavour as intangible but more disquieting one cold winter morning as he dressed in the dark his candle flickering in the draught of the ill-fitting window, he heard her speak from the bed behind him. "'The doctor don't want I should be left without anybody to do for me,' she said in her flat whine. He had supposed her to be asleep, and the sound of her voice had startled him, though she was given to abrupt explosions of speech after long intervals of secretive silence. He turned and looked at her, where she lay indistinctly outlined under the dark calico quilt, her high-boned face taking a greyish tinge from the whiteness of the pillow. "'No body to do for you,' he repeated. "'If you say you can't afford a hired girl when Matty goes.' Frome turned away again, and taking up his razor, stooped to catch the reflection of his stretched cheek in the blotched-looking-glass, above the washstand. "'Why on earth should Matty go?' "'Well, when she gets married, I mean,' his wife's drawl came from behind him. "'Oh, she'd never leave us as long as you needed her,' he returned, scraping hard at his chin. "'I wouldn't ever have it said that I stood in the way of a poor girl like Mattie marrying a smart fellow like dennis Eady," Zena answered in a tone of plaintive self-effacement ethan glaring at his face in the glass threw his head back to draw the razor from ear to chin his hand was steady but the attitude was an excuse for not making an immediate reply and the doctor don't want i should be left without anybody Zena continued he wanted I should speak to you about a girl he's heard about, that might come." Ethan laid down the razor and straightened himself with a laugh. "'Dennis Eady, If that's all, I guess there's no such hurry to look around for a girl.' "'Well, I'd like to talk to you about it,' said Zena obstinately. He was getting into his clothes in fumbling haste. "'All right.' But I haven't got the time now. I'm late as it is. He returned, holding his old silver turnip watch to the candle. Zena, apparently accepting this as final, lay watching him in silence while he pulled his suspenders over his shoulders and jerked his arms into his coat. But as he went toward the door, she said suddenly and incisively, "I guess you're always late." Now you shave every morning." That thrust had frightened him more than any vague insinuations about Dennis Eady. It was a fact that since Matty Silver's coming he had taken to shaving every day. But his wife always seemed to be asleep when he left her side in the winter darkness, and he had stupidly assumed that she would not notice any change in his appearance. Once or twice in the past he had been faintly disquieted by Zenobia's way of letting things happen without seeming to remark them, and then, weeks afterward, in a casual phrase, revealing that she had all along taken her notes and drawn her inferences. Of late, however, there had been no room in his thoughts for such vague apprehensions. Zena herself, from an oppressive reality, had faded into an insubstantial shade. All his life was lived in the sight and sound of Matty Silver, and he could no longer conceive of its being otherwise. But now, as he stood outside the church and saw Matty spinning down the floor with Dennis Eady, a throng of disregarded hints and menaces wove their cloud about his brain. End of chapter one